Well, good morning, everybody. Thinking about this new series, Ancient Generosity, I had all kinds of ideas and thoughts on how to kick it off. When I thought about generosity, I ultimately came back to the people in my life over 51 years who've been generous. And I thought about all of those people who've given and cared for and loved me. And then I drifted to the dark side, and I thought about people who've been stingy, but I didn't dwell there for very long. But I began to wonder, what is it, ultimately, that turns our hearts a few dial clicks, to the left or to the right? What is it that makes the difference in us turning out to be people who are stingy or generous? When I didn't have any, I used to think that generosity would increase if you had money. Now, Connie and I lived in poverty for the first seven or eight years of our married life. We didn't know we were poor. I was a youth pastor. She worked for the county health department. And so one day, she just took our adjusted gross income and looked it up and found out we qualified for food stamps which didn't make the elders where I was youth pastor very happy to find that out, but it was true. I thought it was money that would make us generous because there was a fairly wealthy doctor in the church who took really good care of us, and without him, I don't know how we would have made it through those times. And then I read about people like Jody Richards. Jody saw a homeless man begging outside of a McDonald's, took him in, bought him a cheeseburger, doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Except the purchase of that cheeseburger came out of the $9.50 that was all Jody had to his name. Because Jody was homeless too. An incredible act of generosity. So you put those two things together and you realize it's not really money and having more of it that makes makes us generous. In fact, it may be The opposite, it may be that with every step we climb up the ladder of success, that the money we earn actually clouds our heart's ability to be generous. For some of us, that's true. And God knows that that's a human tendency. When he was about to take the nation of Israel from 400 years of slavery and poverty into the promised land, he cautioned them that the opulence they were about to experience could turn them, those few dial clicks, from generosity to being stingy. It could stop their natural tendency towards compassion and generosity. And so God called them out. He said, when you see somebody in need, don't look away and pretend you don't see them. Don't keep a tight grip on your purse and your wallet. Don't listen to the selfish voice inside of your head that's concerned about your future. Don't turn aside and refuse to help others. And he says, that's a blatant sin. Here's what he says. Give freely and spontaneously. Don't have a stingy heart. The way you handle matters like this triggers God, your God's blessing in everything you do, all your work and ventures. There are always going to be poor and needy people among you, so I command you, always be generous. Open purse. Open hands. Give to your neighbors in trouble. 
your poor, hurting neighbors. And there it is. Generosity, in fact, is a character trait that's formed in us by a series of decisions we make over time. Slight dial clicks. Little daily decisions that turn our heart, shape our character and our destiny, either towards generosity or tight-fisted stinginess. And so the real question this morning is this. Down which path are your daily decisions leading you? I love coming home. I was in Dallas this week at a conference, and there were uh, worship teams there from churches of 7,000 and 15,000 and 20,000. They don't hold a candle to the music here and the worship that's led here. I love coming home to our folks at Westridge. Uh, We're going to take a look this morning in the first of these three messages in uh, the series Ancient Generosity at Moses. In uh, a challenge that was in front of Moses and the people of Israel and the question, who's picking up the tab? Which was a frequent question at this conference I was at. A lot of stingy pastors. Uh, Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai, uh, we know, thanks to some great uh, footage from Cecil B. DeMille, uh, that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, those of you over 30 will get this in a second, Uh, that Moses got the Ten Commandments. You still didn't get it. Uh, Or it just wasn't funny. Moses got the Ten Commandments when he was on Mount Sinai. But he also got a lot of other instructions from God when he was there. Among them was this instruction in Exodus 25. Have the people make a sanctuary for me, and I'll dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. Now, there had to be a lot of questions in Moses' mind when he, saw, when he heard this from God. Moses was a shepherd, not an architect. He didn't know about buildings and structures. Moses was barely a leader, if you read all of Exodus and Genesis leading up to this point. But among all of his questions had to be foremost in his mind was, who's going to pay for this thing? Who's picking up the tab? And with good reason. This really was not a little shack that God was asking Moses to build. In reality, this was the first portable church. If you were around Westwich, Westwich? <laughs> Elmer Fudd does church. If you were around, it's not getting better. If you were here for the first 10 years of whatever this place was called, when they met at ECC, it was portable church, you know? Unpack it, set it up, do church, pack it up, take it home. That's kind of what God's calling them to do. Only this was a lot more extravagant. Basically, a 75 by 150 foot tent for worship. Now, if you're spatially challenged, it's not much bigger than this room. It was filled with gilded candle stands, ornate curtains and tapestries, dyed animal skins. This was a beautiful house of worship. It was home for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. 
It was also home for the altar where daily sacrifices would be made for the sins of the people. And nearly everything in this tabernacle was covered with precious metals. Nearly a ton of gold was used in the building of the tabernacle. Two and three quarter tons of silver, two and a half tons of bronze. At current market prices, 56 million dollars worth of precious metal. Now picture that here. I mean, Darren wanted that, but we just couldn't pull it off. (laughs) That didn't begin to count the precious gems that adorned everything in the tabernacle and all of the garments that were in the tabernacle. And this wasn't Moses' idea. These were the explicit instructions that God gave for building this tent. Now I think I could get comfortable with camping in a tent like that. God commanded building the tabernacle. And if you follow the story through on how it was built and how it came about, there are some incredible lessons in generosity for us to learn from. And the first is this. This entire situation was God-caused, not Moses' idea. After 400 years of slavery, God led His people out of Egypt and miraculously opened up the Red Sea. They crossed it and He gave gave them the deed and the title to the Promised Land. On this 40-year journey to the promised land, God said, I want a place. I want a meeting place that will be both a symbol of my presence with the people and a place where I can meet with them. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. Now, if the nation of Israel had never left Egypt, they wouldn't have needed a tabernacle. If they were still in slavery, they wouldn't have needed a tabernacle. God's deliverance had caused this situation. And it's true for us that some of the situations in our life, some of the challenges we face, are God-caused. But what's important to remember also, what's important to learn is that when we find ourselves in a God-caused situation, God will also supply the resources we need to meet that situation. Look what happens next in the story. The potential to meet that situation is God arranged. God caused situations will always have God's unlimited resources for their solution. It was true for Israel with the tabernacle. It's true for us. Who would have thought that a nation of slaves, people who'd been in slavery for 400 years and had lost everything, could have come up with $56 million worth of precious metal to build a tabernacle. Who would have thought? But the fact is, down through the history of the church, God has always supplied what was needed, when it was needed, for His people. Now, do you remember what happened to the Israelites just before they left Egypt? Do you remember the circumstances? God sent a series of plagues. Things like frogs, lice, boils, All of these plagues were sent on the nation of Israel, I'm sorry, of Egypt. Horrible things were done to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. And time after time, Pharaoh said, no, not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Until finally, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn children of the nation of Egypt. And at last, Pharaoh said, you can go. He let millions of slaves go free. Now you'd think 
when he finally said go, that the Israelites would have made a run for the border, not Taco Bell, the border of Egypt. He would let, they'd make a mad dash for safety, right? But here's what God instructed them to do. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And they gave them whatever they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. I've read that story probably dozens of times in my life. And I've missed the word plundered. God instructed the Israelites to ask their neighbors for objects of silver and gold. Now that's awkward. They've just lost their firstborn child. For some of them, a newborn. For some of them, these could be young men with families that have died. They're in mourning. And they go up to them and say, you know, I know this is a rough time for you. Excuse me, but I need to ask you, is there any gold or silver, any precious gems, any clothing you could spare while we're leaving? And God softened the hearts of the Egyptians towards the slaves in their household. And they just unloaded, just gave liberally so that the Israelites didn't limp out of Egypt. They weren't running in mass. They were packing every animal they had with silver, gold, gems. It was amazing. They plundered Egypt like they were a conquering nation and marched out with a fortune. But God had a purpose for that fortune. It wasn't to make them fat and lazy. It wasn't for their own enjoyment. God had a purpose for that fortune, to build the tabernacle. God has a purpose, just like He does for everything that He's given to you and to me. That truth plays itself out in your life and mine every single day. God never asks us to give something that he hasn't already placed within our potential to give. I think that we've been in a God-caused situation in our church over the last few years. We're in a great location. We have a great facility. We have great potential. We've got a wonderful staff that's very small. It's lean and mean. We've got wonderful volunteers. And over the last two years, like a lot of churches, we've been facing some very difficult times financially. They've forced some hard questions. Questions we really needed to face as a church. Question around staffing and budgets and priorities. And every church in the country is either facing them or folding I was at this conference this week and I was talking with churches ranging in size from 5,000 to 20,000. One pastor in a church of 20,000 last year had a staff of 140 and laid off 25 people. Churches everywhere are facing the same questions we're facing and the same issues we're facing at Westridge. Questions that have forced us to think about our culture and have caused us to make a shift to a volunteer-led culture rather than a staff-led culture in our church, which, by the way, I found this fascinating, uh, a lot of the workshops at this conference said that's the wave of the future for churches all over the country. That in the next 10 years, churches are going to move from being staff-led to volunteer-led. And I just kind of sat back and went, well, we're just ahead of the curve. 
We've faced these challenges, and we're going to continue to face them with open and honest dialogue in our leadership and in our congregation. But I also believe that God has placed all the resources right here in this body that we need to face those challenges and every challenge he's going to put in front of us. All the resources have already been arranged by God and are within this church. The third lesson that you can find if you read this passage is that they took an offering that was God-directed to help them meet the challenge. It's fascinating. Moses didn't decide to take an offering on his own. God said, do this. And he gave the guidelines that are very similar to the guidelines we follow here at Westridge. Here's Here's what happened. Exodus 35. All whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved came. And they brought their sacred offerings to the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle, for the performance of its rituals, and for the sacred garments. Both men and women came, all whose hearts were willing. They brought to the Lord all their offerings. It's such a beautiful picture, and it really is the model of how we teach giving here at Westridge. Three simple principles laid out by Moses to the people, and it came straight from God through Moses. First, it was to be a free will offering. And what I mean by that is Moses said to the people, he wanted it to be perfectly clear. And so in nine verses, he says this four times. He repeats this phrase, all who were willing gave. There was no coercion involved, no tricks involved, no manipulation involved. People didn't line up in front of Moses and he stood and looked and they opened their wallets and emptied them and he looked again to make sure they were empty. There was none of that. They didn't pull out their W-2s and compare the check to the W-2 to make sure they were tithing. There was none of that. It was willing giving. In fact, you never see in Scripture the basis for anyone being shamed or forced or coerced or embarrassed into giving. We say it so much around here that I sometimes fear that people think it's a cliche. But we mean it. We don't want anyone to feel pressured into giving when the offering time comes. We want you to give freely, not out of a sense of obligation or guilt. Secondly, it was to be an offering for God. And that's a vital point in all of our giving. God is to be the object of our giving. God's the primary recipient. And it's true that what's given in the offering time goes to support the budget, goes to support the ministries of the church. But that really is the secondary purpose of our giving. And that's a huge hurdle for some of us. We don't give to meet budget. We don't give to support a program or a ministry or a project. We give to God out of gratitude and out of love for Him and what He's done in our lives. Third, it was an inclusive offering. And this is a big deal because the Israelite culture was a male-dominated culture. And so for Moses to stand up and say, everyone's included, men and women alike were encouraged to give, that was a big deal. And there is no discrimination when it comes to giving. Everyone's given the opportunity to share in the blessings of generosity. And then fourth, and finally, the generosity was God-inspired. I love this part of the story. Because what happened 
was the people gave every single morning. What you see is this picture of the people coming in the morning and giving an offering. And then you get this sense, though it's not written in the passage, that the people went home. And they thought about it. And they went, you know, there is a little more that we could do. There's some gold, there's some silver, there's some things we can part with to help build the tabernacle. There's some things we can do because of how God's been generous to us. Because of God's how, because of how God's provided. And so they came back the next morning and they gave more. And there were other people who hadn't given yet whose hearts were finally stirred and they came back and they gave. And then they reached a point where the, Moses, the workers came to Moses and said, we have a problem. And I don't encounter this problem anywhere else in Scripture except here. And it's, it's a very interesting problem. The builders of the tabernacle came to Moses and said, here's the problem we're struggling with. The people have given more than enough materials to complete the job the Lord has commanded us to do. <laughs> and so Moses gave the command and this message was sent throughout the camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts. We have enough. And so the people stopped bringing their sacred offerings. Their contributions were more than enough to complete the whole project. When the potential is God arranged, when God's already picked up the tab, when the offering is God directed, the generosity that results can't help but be more than enough. As I thought about what happened in that instance, I wondered what would it be like if all of us became God-inspired, generous givers, like the Israelites. What would it be like if all of us began to give that way, regularly, proportionally? I just imagined a day that Norm Whitney, our executive pastor, what would it be like if he called me one day and said, Greg, I have a problem. We have too much money. We've paid off the mortgage way ahead of schedule. We have enough money in the bank for all the needs we anticipate for the next two or three years. So I want you on Sunday morning to stand up and tell people to stop giving for the next month. And to take what they would normally give at the church and find people in their neighborhood who are in need and help them. What would that be like? To be a part of a church that had that kind of joy and generosity. What could we do if we had those kinds of generous hearts in the church? Who could we help if we overflowed with generous hearts like the Israelites did that day? Can you imagine a day like that around here? Because it could happen. God's placed enough resources here to make it happen sooner than we think. If we're able to have this kind of ancient generosity. Can you imagine the sense of joy and accomplishment they had together when that message went out from Moses? And he said, stop giving. And the tabernacle was completed and everyone contributed from a generous heart. 
and they could see God's presence among them with the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. That tabernacle was a sign of their collective generosity. It was something they did together. Everyone sacrificed, everyone contributed, everyone gave. There was no plaque at the entrance to the tabernacle that said, this tabernacle made possible through the generous gift of Aaron, Moses' brother. It wasn't one large donation, it was everybody together. They recognized the goodness of a God who saved them from desperate circumstances. They recognized the goodness of a God who saved them from a dangerous life in Egypt. They recognized that God had already picked up the tab. He provided for them all the wealth they had. And so they gave freely, generously. Instead of clutching and grabbing, they chose to let go. It seemed like a little decision. But it led to a generous heart. And it really is those little decisions that make all the difference, those little dial turns in our heart that change your character, that change the trajectory of your life one way or the other. And how you give in all aspects of your life. And as Moses told his people, the way you handle those little matters of generosity triggers God's blessing in everything you do.